Hey everybody and welcome to the 5 Bytes Podcast. I'm your host, Rory Monahan. Coming up on this week's episode. Unfortunately, the year starts with more tech layoffs. A roundup of Patch Tuesday news, including a problematic BitLocker patch. And just before the holidays, Microsoft put most people's home router's IP addresses in their DNS. For this and more, keep listening to this episode of the podcast, which as always is brought to you by my sponsors. And that includes ControlUp, end-to-end digital experience management for the work from anywhere era. ControlUp, happy users, happy IT. And also brought to you by Netrix Policy Pack, where you use Group Policy, Policy Pack Cloud or MDM to remove local admin rights, manage lockdown applications, Java browsers, and mitigate ransomware plus more. And also brought to you by Numescent, the inventors of the first and only cloud-native container management platform for Windows desktops. If you enjoy the show each week, you have these awesome sponsors to thank. And now for some news. Happy first Patch Tuesday of 2024, which sees patches for 49 flaws and 12 remote code execution vulnerabilities among them. Only two vulnerabilities in the lot were classified as critical, with one being a Windows Kerberos security feature bypass and the other a Hyper-V remote code execution vulnerability. A total roundup of the 49 flaws that were patched. It includes 10 elevation of privilege vulnerabilities, 7 security feature bypass vulnerabilities, 12 remote code execution vulnerabilities, 11 information disclosure vulnerabilities, 6 denial of service vulnerabilities, and 3 spoofing vulnerabilities. Patched is vulnerability CVE-2024-20677, which is a office remote code execution vulnerability that allows threat actors to create maliciously crafted office documents with embedded FBX3D model files to perform remote code execution. Also patched is CVE-2024-20674, which is a critical Windows Kerberos bug that would allow an attacker to bypass the authentication features of the OS. So the good news for this month is it was another month of a low number of flaws being fixed. So that's great because for the previous two years, it seemed like more and more flaws were being uncovered that needed to be patched. And that just increases the risks of things going wrong during patch Tuesdays. But as the next story will show, it's not all good news with this month's patch Tuesday. Microsoft has had to release a PowerShell script to automate updating the Windows Recovery Environment Partition in order to fix CVE-2024-20666, which is a vulnerability that allowed for BitLocker encryption bypass. So it was one of those seven security feature bypass vulnerabilities that was patched as part of this month's Patch Tuesday. Unfortunately, as I saw earlier in the week in the patch mail group, when trying to deploy the update, some were reporting seeing a 0x80 error. And Microsoft explains that this happens because instead of displaying a CBS underscore E underscore insufficient underscore disk underscore space error when the WinRE partition is not large enough for the patch, Windows Update incorrectly says that it's this generic 0x error, which has a description of error install failure. This happens because the WinRE image file or WinRE.wim 
deployed when installing the KB5034441 update is too large for the recovery partition. And to address the issue, Microsoft advised users to create a larger WinRE partition to have enough room for the patch to install. Unfortunately, there's several steps for doing this. So there's a script that has been made available by Microsoft, which automates this and makes it straightforward. Interestingly, as noted on Reddit and also in the patch mail group, server editions are also affected by the same vulnerability. But for server 2016 and 2019, there's no patch available. And the FAQ for the vulnerability states, quote, if your version of Windows is not listed above, note server 2016 and 2019 or not, you can download the latest Windows Safe OS dynamic update from the Microsoft Update Catalog. You can then apply the WinRE update, see add an update package to Windows RE. And to automate your installation, Microsoft has developed a sample script that can help you automate updating WinRE from the running Windows OS. And please see KB5034957. So that is an interesting and possibly a dangerous precedent where they're aware that there's this vulnerability that exists on older operating systems such as server 2016 and 2019, but they're not making an update available. Maybe they're thinking that it's not going to be as relevant because possibly not many organizations use BitLocker on their servers running in the data center. Uh, hopefully that's it. And hopefully this is not a sign of things to come for other updates in future. LeapyComputer.com has reported that once again, malicious advertisements for popular software and Microsoft Teams phishing messages have been used by cyber gangs to push signed malicious MSIX packages. If you are a regular listener to the podcast, you may recall that I covered the fact Microsoft previously disabled the MS App Installer Protocol Handler back in February of 2022. Well, Microsoft has moved to once again disable the MS App Installer Protocol Handler, and Microsoft has recommended installing the patched App Installer version 1.21.3421.0 or later to block exploitation attempts. And the App Installer app, of course, is Windows Package Manager. And Microsoft also advised administrators who can't immediately deploy the latest App Installer version to disable the protocol by setting the group policy enable MS app installer protocol to disabled. I do wonder if this affects some vendors who were providing app libraries or apps in MSIX format with their own solutions that relied on the MS app installer protocol handler as part of their update mechanism. I know a couple years ago at the app manage event, there were some vendors who had products that were doing that. Uh, I wonder if they've been able to pivot to using Windows package manager instead, which I thought was interesting. Uh, you know, the new version of Teams that came out a few months ago, I saw that they've updated the information on the store and it now has the uh, app installer application, which is Windows Package Manager, as a prerequisite. So I'm guessing going forward, the main update mechanism is going to be Windows Package Manager. It's a bad start to the year for tech as there has been more high profile layoffs at companies such as Twitch, Duolingo and Citrix. Citrix are reported to have laid off 1,000 employees, or about 12% of their workforce. And CEO Tom Krause stated, quote, We are working with partners who will rehire many of those individuals to continue providing outsourced services to cloud software group, end quote. Um, so I didn't see any more information on that other than this statement that was included by CEO Tom Krause. I'd be interested in that because 
Obviously, one of the things that Citrix uh, did after the acquisition by Tibco was they started to take some of the larger accounts for themselves and were giving smaller accounts to um, some of the partners. So I wonder if they've got these relationships with partners where they're going to try and move some of their employees who have been let go uh, to work for these partners instead. I guess that remains to be seen. And this is just something that was put in that statement, which may be kind of like a cushion statement. Um, so I guess we'll wait and see if that actually comes to fruition. And on the last episode of the podcast, I covered some of the big stories of 2023. And one of those stories was all of the layoffs from last year. And in that segment, I went through some of the data from sources like TechCrunch.com, which showed that the first months of 2023 were by far the most active for layoffs. So I did speculate that if 2024 carries on from last year, that layoffs may occur in January. And unfortunately, this seems to be the case. And only uh, a few have been announced so far. So I think, unfortunately, we can anticipate more layoffs in the coming weeks. I do want to wish the best for all those at Citrix, who undoubtedly must have low morale, having lost many colleagues. And of course, I wish the best to all of those who are affected and let go. I hope you find a new job quickly. Earlier in the week, Reuters covered a story that cited an anonymous source stating that HPE, or Hewlett-Packard Enterprise, was in talks to buy Juniper Networks in a deal valuing the network gear maker at about $13 billion. Well, this one did actually come to fruition a bit later in the week, and the number or valuation being quoted within the actual uh, press coverage after the acquisition was formally announced was actually about $14 billion, so not too far off when it was just being rumored. And shares of Hewlett-Packard fell 7.7% as these rumors were being reported, while Juniper jumped about 21% in extended trading. Reuters stated that Juniper's high-performance network and service offerings include routing, switching, wireless fidelity, network security, and probably of the most interest to HP, AI-enabled enterprise networking operations or AIOps and software-defined networking technologies. So a way for uh, HP to possibly start to innovate on their already considerable network offering and uh, bring some of that AI goodness that's all, all a buzz right now. And unfortunately, I'm sure in weeks or months from now, when this acquisition has settled, there's probably going to be some layoffs as these organizations become merged. So that's going to be the downside of this. Uh, I was having a chat with some of my friends in the industry a few days ago, and I was just thinking, like, at least in end user computing, I don't know if there's going to be too many acquisitions in the coming uh, year, because I would think the biggest player in the space would be Microsoft. And I think they're going to be prioritizing AI. So maybe some of the more traditional players in end user computing would not be acquired until they've got at least some AI features that Microsoft wants to latch onto. At least that's just my opinion. I am not some business-minded, uh, big-picture thinker by any means, but that's kind of just the layout of things and how I see it. In a move similar to the one made by Tibco post-Citrix acquisition, Broadcom are said to be taking over large customer accounts directly, effective immediately. Channelweb.co.uk reports that this includes around 2,000 accounts with a threshold set reportedly at $500,000 or more in annual revenue. The leak came from a document that was shared during an informational session that Broadcom hosted with VMware partners on January 4th, 
But at the time of scripting this episode of the podcast, Broadcom had declined to comment on the leak. So I admit this story is a little bit old because I did the uh, the New Year episode, which was a roundup mostly of stories from 2023. So, and this one was announced just before the holidays, I believe, actually on the 20th of December. So it's a little dated, uh, but if you'll forgive me. Uh, Citrix announced Citrix Virtual Apps and Desktops version 72311. Uh, and in this release, administrators can now manage PBS provisioning from Studio with a unified UI and workflow that greatly improves PBS's supportability by employing the same API as MCS. And the VDA upgrade servers for DAS customers also get some enhancements. Uh, proxy support enables customers to use the service when the VDAs are behind internet proxies for doing the automated updates. Uh, local file share support enables customers that have air-gapped environments to direct their VDAs to a local file share and pull the latest VDA installer locally, so no need for internet access. And lastly, new upgrade fail-safe cap capabilities allow administrators to configure an exit strategy during upgrade issues by setting concurrency levels and failure thresholds. Citrix Monitor also got some love as it's got a new logon, breakdown UI, session performance metrics, and more. And session recording will also include in-session audio from this release forward. Uh, there's also loss tolerant mode for graphics and HDX to improve performance even more when network performance has been degraded. And Carl Stallhood pointed out that this version of PVS removes support for BIOS, forcing a move to UEFI. And my buddy Trenton Tai pointed out that this means server 2008 R2 should not be bootable on the newest PVS as a result. For more of the different features announced for this release, I'll share a link with the episode, which is episode 316, and you can find that at 5bytespodcast.com. And I'm heartened by the number of features and improvements being rolled out by Citrix in this release, as it gives me faith in their commitment to the core product offering. And I hope this keeps up in 2024. The Copilot app is now available on iOS and iPadOS. The iPad version of the app will also run on Macs that are powered by Apple Silicon, so you can find it on the Mac App Store too. And WCCFTech.com stated, quote, Copilot is much better and much more comprehensive generative AI experience on any, on any device. Not only that, but it is a much better app than ChatGPT. So if you're looking for an AI experience, you know where to go with a smiley face. Um, I didn't think the ChatGPT actually had an app, so I think that one's a little bit misleading. I know there's a bunch of kind of imposter apps or just apps that uh, inject in submissions or queries to ChatGPT and returns, but I don't believe there is an OpenAI official app. So that one's a bit of an odd statement. There was a great thread by Cecilia Zinitti about a week ago or so, maybe even two weeks at this point, uh, and she's an IP and AI lawyer. Uh, and the thread was about the recently filed copyright suit by the New York Times against OpenAI. It's a great read, and I won't give it all the way on this podcast. I'd encourage you to go read it for yourself. But a few points of note that I took from it is that the New York Times can show results from the ChatGPT that shows it is heavily scraping the data from their articles. And in some cases, with very little additional text added by the AI service. So essentially, almost verbatim, it just puts in its own little context here and there. New York Times reached out earlier in the year to OpenAI about getting an agreement in place, 
such as the agreement that OpenAI currently has with Politico, but these discussions are attempted discussions with nowhere. Her professional opinion is that OpenAI should settle the case. The New York Times is said to have solid evidence and a great legal team. OpenAI will likely regret not paying New York Times to partner when they were reaching out as they're going to get sued and I guess we're going to see how this goes. So this could set a precedence as well for whose data they're scraping and also just how they present that data as well. I mean, they could ingest it and maybe change up the text so it's not like deliberate plagiarism, which, you know, if you look at the article or the thread, you'll see just how much of the text is is straight out of a New York Times article. And I'll share a link to the thread with this episode too, which again is episode 316. In some more AI-related news, I saw a fascinating thread on Twitter on AI and large language models stating particularly when handling queries about programming languages, the models become dated and even start to drift in quality over time as they do not adapt as inputs change over time. The thread suggests they need to constantly retrain these models, which is a very expensive endeavor. So you may think AI gets better over time as it sees people asking more and more questions on different topics and more specific questions on newer technologies, but they are essentially in a frozen state until the models are retrained rather than continuously learning all the time, which that's not all that surprising. And we've seen the allegations about uh, OpenAI and the fact that they've outsourced uh, much of this data gathering work. According to the Financial Times, Deloitte are rolling out a generative AI chatbot to 75,000 of their employees across Europe and the Middle East to create PowerPoint presentations and write emails and code in an attempt to boost productivity. As is usually the case when I use uh, Financial Times as a source, I'm not going to go much further into the article because they seem to be very strict when it comes to sharing their articles, which I find odd because sampling is permitted. But anyway, to me, it kind of sounds like they've possibly just skinned Microsoft's Copilot because uh, they mentioned specifically writing emails and PowerPoint presentations. So it'd be interesting to see if there's more details. I'm sure they're not going to share the UI and screenshots of what they've got, but that would be kind of cool to see. CES was held this week, and as is usually the case due to the nature of the event, the announcements were mostly consumer-focused. I find it interesting that I feel like consumer announcements at CES are by the likes of NVIDIA and Apple and so forth, uh, and are actually becoming more relevant to end-user computing since the employees we have to support are becoming more and more often, which tend to be obviously consumer-grade devices. Uh, but anyway... Uh, at CES, Intel announced their 14th generation CPU family. And as you may expect, throughout the tier of levels, there are performance improvements compared to the previous generation, which may not be all that exciting. So let me just focus on the highest end, most powerful chip rather than go through all of them. And this chip for laptops is the Core i9-14900HX, and it features 8 P cores and 16 E cores and a 5.8 GHz turbo frequency. Intel claims it beats AMD's Ryzen 7945X3D in gaming performance by 17%, and it's also 51% faster than the Ryzen 7945HX for multitasking a virtual production using like Unreal Engine's uh, 5's Meta, Human Generator, and Reality Capture software. So obviously that high end 
and it's consumer grade. They're pitching this towards uh, gamers. Even the new i7 has 20 total cores. Isn't it crazy to see how many cores are now available in consumer grade laptops? And yet it's like the theory on road traffic management. You know, some say it's pointless building bypasses, new freeways or putting in extra lanes on existing roads because all that does is invite more traffic. It doesn't fix the underlying problem with traffic. It just makes the problem larger. Well, it kind of seems like hardware manufacturers are starting to provide greater power to consumers, but poorly written applications are still just gobbling up all the resources that become available, just like they always have. So, so the performance gains are not as great as they likely should be in my experience. I know I went on a tangent when I was writing this down and uh, making this weird analogy, but I think it fits. Also, interestingly, it seems like hardware makers based on some of the announcements at CES are already moving on from Wi-Fi 6, which I don't think really got mainstream adoption, at least widespread. And they're moving towards Wi-Fi 7 for their newer devices. Over the last few years, I covered the story about Merck's insurers refusing payment off the back of their claim following their very high profile breach in 2017. Well, the insurance company then claimed the breach as due to an act of war, which waived their responsibility to compensate, at least in their opinion. And in 2022, a court ruled the act of war exemption did not apply in this case. And now the record media is reporting that Merck and their insurer have reached an undisclosed settlement. The record media also shared another instance of an insurance company who also reached a settlement for a similar claim and pointed out in the story that Lloyds of London, who are a major insurer, announced back in 2022 that underwriters would be required to exclude coverage for state-backed cyber attacks linked to war and incidents that, quote, significantly impair the ability of a state to function. So this was obviously a reaction to the Merck story and how it was playing out. Insurers are moving to change the verbiage in their coverage to exclude attacks from nation state actors. And obviously what happened to Merck was a few years ago. Uh, so I think they've kind of become the precedent and insurers are now taking action so they don't become liable in some way. Luckily for Merck, because they were before this change, it sounds like they at least reached some sort of settlement with their insurer. But in the future, because these policies are going to be written in, uh, at least nation state backed attacks are likely not to be covered by cyber insurance policies. In a story about an IT project that was too big to fail or is still too big to fail, unfortunately, over in the UK this week, it was revealed that their postal service extended their support contract with Fujitsu despite a very public high profile scandal related to a 2.3 billion pound Horizon system project. So Horizon system, I believe, is the internal name for this system that they're using within their mailing service. And I covered the Horizon system on the podcast last year as it was being widely reported that faults in the Horizon system led to hundreds of false prosecutions carried out by the internal post office investigators with the help of Fujitsu. The UK press interviewed victims of the scandal at the time who told of how their lives were ruined by the accusations and by the impending investigation. Despite this, the contract with Fujitsu has been extended as it seems the current state of the project leaves the post office in a position where they cannot move to some other company for help. So like I said, a project that's too big to fail, it's too far down the line and it's too complicated, I guess, for some other vendor to come in 
and just start to handle it. A tender document stated, quote, the program to transfer the services to a new cloud provider created fundamental technical challenges that the post office could not economically and technically overcome. And the business has taken the decision to pivot back to the Fujitsu provided Horizon data centers until the successful transfer of services out of Horizon and into its replacement new branch IT. Oof. This one is a little bit dated too, to be honest, but Google has identified an issue when upgrading to Android version 14 that makes certain management policies permanent. Google recently identified two issues in Android 14 that make some management policies permanent on non-Samsung devices. When a device is upgraded from Android 13 to 14, certain settings will be made permanent on the device. And additionally, when devices that have been upgraded to Android 14 are rebooted, other settings are made permanent on the device. For example, let's say you are managing a device with a personally owned work profile running Android 13 with the settings block camera and block apps from unknown sources enabled in the management profile. Well, when the device updates to Android 14, the camera will become permanently blocked, even if you later disable the block camera setting in Intune. After the update to Android 14, when the device reboots, apps from unknown sources will also become permanently blocked, even if you later disable block apps from unknown sources in iTunes. And due to the severity of this issue, they do not recommend updating non-Samsung devices to Android 14 at the time of recording. In an update to a previous story I covered about Apple pulling products that feature the oximeter, such as Apple Watch Series 9 and Ultra 2 Series, well, the ban that came into effect after the ruling in favor of Massimo has been temporarily suspended. The lawsuit between Apple and Massimo will resume next week on January 15th. However, Apple is acting swiftly and recently submitted new designs to US authorities. Massimo, by the way, is said to actually want to make the technology available to Apple for a fee. So, I mean, Apple could just pay Massimo and all would be right, I guess. I saw a recent Citrix article, CTX585692 was shared, uh, which shows that the FSLogix app services used in VDI profiles often stops after a Windows update and there is a solution which they say is to disable Citrix API hook for frxcvsvc.exe by modifying the hook registry, which is HKLM system current control set services, CTX UVI, and the value for UVI process excludes and add in that frxsvc.exe, then reboot the VDA uh, to make sure this takes effect. And if you're a Citrix admin, you'll probably already be familiar with Citrix API hooks because this is something that you run into quite often as a Citrix admin. I saw an interesting note that was shared on social media, and it's something that appears at the top of the autopilot landing page within the Microsoft documents. And that is that Microsoft recommends deploying new devices as cloud native using Microsoft Entra Join. And deploying new devices as Microsoft Entra a hybrid join devices is not recommended, including through autopilot. And they link off to more information on Entra Join versus Entra Hybrid Join in cloud native endpoints. And I can't remember seeing this before, at least on Microsoft sites. I know that Microsoft employees on social media have suggested this for a while, and certainly some of the consultants and MVPs have been recommending this for years. Um, but it's interesting to see it on an official Microsoft documentation as well. 
I saw a tweet around the holidays, I believe, that the next version of Master Packager Dev will allow vendors to create an MSI package that can check dependencies and install if missing from Winget. So that's something to look forward to. GitHub.com users must enable two-factor authentication by January 19th of this year. So I believe that's about a week away. And no worries if you do not do it before then, uh, but if you would like to access your account after the deadline, you will be forced to first set up two-factor authentication. And this does not impact those using business or enterprise offerings. In an absolutely bizarre story, users on the Hacker News forum pointed out before the holidays that Microsoft temporarily added IP address 192.168.1.1 to their DNS. I did not see any reports of issues caused by this change, and I would think there is just a possibility that calls to Microsoft's hosted services that use Microsoft.com may have failed if it happened to resolve to the user's home router instead of Microsoft.com, but it appeared to be resolved quick enough that perhaps it didn't impact anyone long enough to register. That and I'm struggling to think of a service that actually uses Microsoft.com's domain explicitly. I believe most use different domains or subdomains, but I could stand corrected on that. In a fun, somewhat IT-related story, some Alamo Drafthouse movie theaters in the US were unable to show films due to what was speculated as a cert expiration issue. Though some theaters blamed a technical issue with their Sony projectors, but a Slash.org contributor explained further saying, quote, Deluxe and the movie companies have been frantically trying to remaster and send out revised versions of current movies over the past few days. Nobody knows what will happen to older movie titles since everything mastered by Deluxe since 2011 may be affected and may need to be remastered if it is to be shown in movie theaters again. As of New Year's Day, it was believed the issue had been resolved and that the cert may or may not have expired on December 30th, which to me sounds plausible at least, right? The cert had probably been in use for some time and it just happened to expire. Uh, so those kind of recent movies that were maybe sent out a few weeks ago would stop working. And unfortunately, those ones are still being shown in the theaters. Therefore, they needed to get them remastered, re-signed and sent out again in order for those Alamo Drafthouse theaters to be able to show them. Now, those older movies, that's going to be another fun one. Like if there's like a 10th or maybe 20th year anniversary screening, they're going to need to remaster those old movies and reapply a cert again. So details of this last story were actually coming to light as I recorded episode 314 in the podcast, but I figured it is not enterprise related, so I didn't include it on that episode. But since then, I read a new detail that made me reconsider. So it's old hat now, but I'm sure you all heard of Rockstar Games getting breached with someone leaking clips of their highly anticipated Grand Theft Auto 6 game. Well, the person who breached them is allegedly Ariane Kurtaj from Oxford, who is 18 years old and a member of Lapsus and is reportedly autistic with the court deciding he was unfit to stand a criminal trial. So the jury was simply asked to just give a verdict on whether or not he was guilty. And rather than being sentenced to prison, he has been put under an indefinite hospital order due to his autism and the fact he intends to return to cybercrime as soon as possible. The jury was told that while he was on bail for hacking NVIDIA and BT and actually in police protection at the time at a travel lodge hotel, he continued hacking and carried out the attack to steal GTA 6 clips, all despite having his laptop confiscated 
and the story suggests he reportedly managed to breach Rockstar using an Amazon Fire Stick, his hotel TV, and a mobile phone. So, I mean, the fact that he was in police protection when he launched the attack that breached Rockstar and stole those clips that was very valuable, obviously, to them, and he has intent to return to cybercrime as soon as possible, it kind of makes sense for there to be this indefinite hospital order, although it does seem a little shaky legally to just indefinitely keep someone in a hospital. So I heavily edited this episode uh, just because it's been so long between episodes. There was a whole lot to cover and there's some stories that I just did not cover at all. I just completely scrapped them. So there may be some stuff next week that uh, was reported in mainstream media this week, but we'll wait and see. Also, there was that issue of the BitLocker patch problem and the script that was released, but I assume there's going to be some more patch fallout. Although <laughs> there wasn't in the last month or so, there was only one that I can remember, uh, but you can expect some patch fallout news possibly next week or the week after. So, yep, yeah, thank you if you stuck through this whole episode's news because there was a lot, even though I had to cut some, <laughs> it was still long. And uh, yeah, let's get on to the first scripts, tricks, and tips of the year. On Twitter, Thorsten shared an old how-to from Adam Bertram on how to build an interactive menu with PowerShell. So that's one worth checking out. Taylor Alexis had a tweet before the holidays about Hack the Box, which I find really, really interesting and something I definitely want to try out myself. Uh, but essentially, it looks like a isolated box and there may be like a, a known vulnerability that you could potentially try to hack and get access to that box using known vulnerabilities. It seems like a, a fun way to pass some time. Michael Nihas had a blog post just after Christmas on the new community modules for Microsoft Autopilot. So if you're using Autopilot and you want to check out the modules, he's got some information on those. I saw a nice useful blog post for pretty much anyone in the endpoint management game. And it's on how to create a free lab for Microsoft 365 and Intune. And I know on previous episodes, I covered the developer license uh, that you can get for some of the Microsoft cloud services. And that uses this along with access for Intune. Um, so definitely one that a lot of people want to check out. The awesome Aaron Parker had a blog post on validating user acceptance testing images with Azure Pipelines and Pester. So if you're into automating your validation of UAT images, check this out. And finally, just to plug a couple of things that I'm involved with, if you don't mind, I published a blog post on my own site, RoryMon.com, on my lessons learned with Chocolatey and Winget. So I created an automation script for my packaging and patching efforts. And in doing so, I used Winget and Chocolatey as a couple of my sources. And I share some of the lessons I learned when trying to integrate and work with those products. Finally, on Christmas Day, Numescent, who's my employer and who's also a sponsor of this show, shared a tweet and a post on other social channels that was a video of yours truly, but we announced a giveaway of some Numescent swag to those who like and share the post of the actual video. So if you'd like some cool swag that includes a really nice shirt that we were giving away, uh, or well, we gave a similar shirt away, I believe, at the IOCS conference in Las Vegas, and it was very popular there. But if you'd like one of those shirts for yourself, along with some other swag, be sure to like and share and follow on the social media channels to be in with the chance. Well, that's it for this episode. Again, it was a long episode. I apologize. I'll try to make sure next week's episode's a bit shorter, at least. Uh, there was a lot to cover. 
And thank you all so much for listening. And I may tweak the format of the show in the coming weeks, as I usually do in the new year. But thanks again.